0: A history of live sound, with Chris Snyder. In previous episodes, I've talked to Phil Dudridge about his time mixing Led Zeppelin in 1970. Technology was moving fast, and there was a race for big bands to have the cutting-edge technology for their show. But by 1977, the emerging punk bands didn't want to own a large public address system... They just wanted to turn up and play, so a market began for hiring PA systems. Pete Russell, aka Big Pete, started working shortly before Punk arrived on the scene and worked alternately for bands and the emerging PA companies of the time. He finished his first stint on the road working with acts like Metallica and Simply Red. After getting off the road, he worked as a project manager at SSE for 20 years, now retired from the day job. He still mixes several acts, including his long-standing friend's thunder. So previously I'd spoken to Phil Dudridge, who mixed Led Zeppelin and lots of psychedelic things in the late 1960s.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he talked about the days where people were travelling around in vans and brought some WEM columns to be a vocal PA. And he started to get out of that business into the mid 70s but if i'm right in thinking that's sort of when you started to... and I,
1: start, I started in 76 and things were still pretty much as it was then in the 60s for me um i was working for a local band had their own pa system it was a bit more than a vocal pa we had a, an m&m 16 channel mixer a very dodgy selection of microphones a couple of JBL bins with horns, just a two-way system. But it worked, and we were doing mainly pubs and small club gigs. Uh, and there were a lot of bands around doing the same thing. Bands that didn't have their own PA's are hiring other bands' PA's and things like that. But uh-huh. most of the small systems were owned by bands.
0: If if that was the the case, then did they just sort of get a friend who was technically minded to set it up for them, or
1: no? I was impl- I was employed. I actually answered an ad in a paper. I was driving for a living. I'd been playing in bands like garage bands, never really went anywhere, and I was bored with doing what I was doing. I had a job that was supposed to start in about six months' time, waiting for funding, and there was a job advertising a paper: sound engineer driver wanted. So I thought that sounds like a posh name for a roadie. So I went and did it. I went and went for the interview in a pub, which was their one of their residences. He opened the desk up, and the biggest thing I'd done anything with before was like a mix ramp. And he opened up this desk, that to me appeared like a million knobs. But I had to look at the channel, figured it out, and he said, "Can you, you know, use one of these?" So I lied through my teeth and said, "Yeah, no problem." <laughs> and that was it really uh, and I started about a week later carried everything in a, a rugby old ex-GPO van it took me six weeks to figure out how to get everything in we always ended up <laughs> with the floor tom in the front with us so Yeah, and that went on for about three years but it was right. the start of punk and mm. there were a lot of bands doing small gigs who needed a PA so the PA was getting hired out a lot and um, making money for the band, so, you know, that's yeah. what I was doing. So I mainly did that with them. And it was paid on a gig-by-gig gig basis, basically. I think I got six quid for residences, and I got 10 quid if it was away locally, 12 quid if it was distance. And that was, that was how I used to get paid. And I think if I was on the road touring, I used to get 45 or 50 quid a week, something like that. Wow.
0: Living the dream.
1: Yeah, but this was, you know, in the 70s, so things were a bit cheaper then. Yeah. There was a lot of unemployment about and, you know, a lot of people on the dole and stuff like that. So I was, I mean, I was just ducking and diving, making a living, living in various nefarious squats and, you know, whatever I could do to keep the body (laughs) and soul together. As long as I had my motorbike and somewhere to crash, that was me, I didn't really care then.
0: So... Originally, you were working with bands, and then they started to earn some money by renting out their own PA. Mm-hmm. Did you then start to think I should be working for a PA company rather than a band? Um,
1: no, not really. I mean, after the three years I've been working, unbelievable hours, I've got a bit cheesed off with it, to be honest. Because besides the doing the crew work for the band and their PA, I was also driving trucks and you know just trying to make a living and uh, the agency that I was driving for offered me a job running the driver's part of the agency, the employment agency. And it was regular money, and I thought, yeah, okay, I've had enough of this rock and roll shit. So (laughs) uh, I went and worked for them. And it was okay to start with, and then I used to get loads of people coming in who I knew from the road coming in, asking, looking for work. So they'd be telling me about the latest gigs and this, that, and the other. Anyway, one guy came in who I knew, a guy called Nick, who worked for Steel Pulse. This would have been about 19, end of 79, and he said that Pulse were doing loads of work, they were looking for a new guy because one guy had left, one of the crew guys, specifically with the PA. I knew their engineer a guy called Morris, and he said, do you fancy it? So I said, yeah, all right. Mm. So I went to work for them and uh, their PO's been rented out to UB40 for their first ever tour, and I did that, and then I was back on the road again. Uh, I I met a London-based management company at that point as well, who uh, I did a few gigs for, and I ended up working for them out of London as their de facto tour manager and house engineer, and I'd worked with them for a couple of years out of London. That had been early mm -hmm. 80s, and then I ended up working for TechServe or getting a gig with uh, Stiff Little Fingers.
0: So I've heard TechServe mentioned before, but yeah. I don't know much about them. But were so, they... Yeah, they, they
1: started in the mid-70s. Uh, Bob Doyle, the legend that is, he started it. He was a Serving Vega rep in the UK, and Vega weren't that well-known over here at that point. And he, he bought a load of it, particularly the earthquake bins, which were phenomenal pieces of kit. And he, had, he built himself a system that could fit in the back of a transit. And he was doing similar gigs to me at the punk era, 76 through to 1980. Mm. He bought, he invested in more gear, better gear, still based on Sue Vega PA. And it, it just carried on and it built up over the years. And it was great. It was based in Birmingham. Everybody who worked for the company was on wages, no matter whether you were working or not. The wages were not when you were on the road, but you had a a regular income. And it was a really great place to work, really friendly. Mm. Bob was a nutter, but it was really good. He was fiercely loyal to his crew. And it was all a bit, at that point, you know, it was still very rock and roll. The business was very rock and roll. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was great. And Tech They ended up through he ended up going to Tasco, um, being headhunted by Joe Brown, to because Tasco bought ML, and Bob was asked to go and run ML. So Techs have sort of amalgamated with Tasco. The idea was originally that it would be run separately within the company, but it all sort of fell apart and Gear disappeared, and as it does. He moved to London and he was based out of London and he ended up leaving that and going in with John Penn at SSE. Ah. And then he left S S C and went to Midas. So that's the, the Bob Doyle connection.
0: I see. So uh, there's, there's a moment there where there are suddenly some big players yeah. in the game then yeah. in terms of big companies that basically sprung from bands touring gear. Yeah. So Brit Rose, the sort of famous one from Pink Floyd,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then there was there was the Who. Yeah, which was ML. And there's Capital Sound happened around that time, I think, as well. Yeah,
1: they, they all started, it was all around the 70s, mid-70s, early 80s, when they started to come up. Um, SSE was, uh, John Penn started that at university, really, um, and he was also into manufacturing as well as rental and that started based in Nottingham. He was doing discos, I think, and stuff like that, and sort of expanded it from there. I think the darts Mm. had a lot to do with the growth of the company, but he also did the undertones and all sorts of stuff around that time.
0: I remember him telling me about,
1: was it art school, I think he did?
0: Deaf school. Deaf school, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's all around that
1: time, which is how he expanded the company. TASCO... I'm not sure how they started, but they expanded into America pretty quickly. Mm. And they were one of the first companies to have a designated flying system, which was the Harwell, because uh, before that, every system was basically a ground stack system used to put on a cradle and lift into the air. But, uh. but Harwell and the Claire system, the uh, S4s, they were the, origin- they were the original design-to-fly system. Um, and then other companies followed suit, like uh, oh, Texas-based. I'm having a senior moment there. <laughs> the Genesis of the system, and they also were instrumental in the uh, development of uh, uh So, yeah, so those systems came about, but they didn't come about till mid-'80s, I suppose, those systems.
0: You know, when I was looking back at some of the, the PAs from that time, Thought, well, who did Live Aid? Because that was a pretty big thing. Oh, Malcolm and Hill, that said was, Hill Ors, that yeah. Was yeah.
1: horrendous. They were like big square boxes that, I think from memory, and I could be wrong, two 15s, two 10s and horns in each box. Uh, they were quite heavy. They did fly. Oh, no, they were all 10s, that was it, because Malcolm said, you only need a 10-inch speaker. And there were subs to go with it. It was very loud, but it wasn't exactly, in my opinion, it wasn't exactly hi-fi. But he, had, he manufactured his own desks, and um, it was really bizarre. The monitor desk was all faders, right? So all the outputs were faders, so there were banks of faders on every channel. And then he used to use white graphics, which were rotaries. So where you'd expect to have knobs you had faders, and where you expected to have faders, you had knobs. And it was just so confusing. (laughs) It really was. It just completely like, what is going on here? Um, Yeah, but I don't know really how... They disappeared very quickly. I'm not sure what happened. Um, They had some big rock acts. They were doing ACDC for a while. They had Motred. They had all sorts. And then they just sort of disappeared. In the early '90s, um, but they used to do Monsters of Rock nearly every year, you know. And they were a big rock company. They were known for doing yeah. big rock acts. I'm not sure yeah. whether whether they actually went to the states with the system, or they used to use something else in the states, or how that worked. Because it was their system; it was home built. It wasn't a generic system. And at that time, as well in the in the 80s particularly early 80s most of the pa systems were home built or home design systems mm. so each pa company had its own system rather than a generic system like there are now right yeah so it, like ssa had this thing called an hb3 which they designed and built themselves techs have used a certain vague which nobody else did Tashco had the Harwell system, Kreis had the S4,
0: they all had their own system. Oh, so you, you selected your PA company based on what sound you want. Exactly,
1: but it meant if you wanted to use the same PA everywhere, you had to ship it,
0: right? Uh... So
1: for instance, we were doing Metallica and we got the States and we had to ship everything out to the States. And although it's sort of, I mean, in that particular tour was a bit of a, a nightmare, but it meant that there were problems with spares, there were problems with mains, all those problems that you get yeah. from going from one area to another were multiplied, and that, that was apart from the shipping costs. So, and in in the mid eighties, generic systems started to come to the fore, like designed big PA systems. Not at the, before that, PA companies were mainly manufacturers were building boxes. But not systems. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Whereas, so in the mid eighties, they started to design systems. So you get JBL Vertec, you get EV MT systems. You started to get Alpha from Nexo. You, you know, all these systems started coming on stream. This is before line array, but it specifically yeah. designed flying array systems. And the thing was, you could pick them up anywhere in the world. And it didn't matter if you were touring worldwide. You knew you'd get the same system in every territory. So it gives it some consistency, not just for the sound, but for the aesthetics and for flying and for designing productions around a PA system. That was quite important. Yeah. And so that meant that most of the PA companies, rather than running their own boxes, started to buy into generics. I mean, at the time, SSE went from their own boxes and bought, went in, invested in EV, and we were in MT4 house. And that meant that we picked up loads of stuff worldwide because we could use the same systems like Metallic uh, Simply Red, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it made life a lot, it made everybody a world player, if you like.
0: Hmm. That's interesting as well, because before that, as you say, it it was home-built systems, so as long as you could build enough of your home-built boxes, you could be a player, but now you actually had to buy a branded...
1: Yeah, the investment was far higher, and that's when the people... I mean, I've never had anything to do with that, but, but it's when you needed people who understood money and how to get money, how to use the money. You need somebody who understood business, Rather than just pure rock and rollers and John for instance I because obviously working here CI John's very very good at that you know he knows exactly how the company's doing what it can do where it can get money from if he needs it and that was really important at that time because of the amount of investment needed to buy the systems and by the same token the manufacturers were also doing lease deals so if the systems cost them no say £400,000 for a system that could do an arena, then they would have the finances in place so that you could do it on a lease deal, providing your finances were sand, so you'd have to pass the test and stuff. They would have the financing there if you
0: needed it. When I was speaking to Phil about the early 70s, he said, in those days, you'd say to a band, you're going out on tour, I'll provide the PA for you, can you give me a down payment? So he said everything was generally when you were building a mixing desk or building a PA, whatever you were doing, you'd be able to find someone to basically front 50% of the cost for you before you built it. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the other 50% would be on delivery. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's interesting that, you know, obviously it escalated so quickly in terms of cost that suddenly it was now a finance thing and the, the risk was on the PA company rather than on the, the band. Yeah,
1: yeah. To degree, and, and, and especially if you're looking at, for instance, a season of work, then you, you've got to take the whole season, not just one event. So you've got to look at the whole picture and what you're going to need. You know, these days, it's half the job is about planning, so you've got things covered. Look forward to the next three months and see what's going to happen, what do we need, do we buy it, do we sub-rent it in, blah, 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 those sort of decisions. That's one of the most important aspects of the business, if you like, these days. You know, Mm. it it is very much a business rather than, I don't want to say hobby, I mean, it's a very serious business.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, There's a lot more planning now than... Oh, yeah. So... We, we sort of digress slightly from where your path led. As you do. Led, <laughs> As you do. Um, yeah, so you... So you... So
1: but going back to... So I did Stiff Little Fingers. I was very enthusiastic at the time, and it was... A, I can't tell you how much fun fingers were to, to work for. The, the pranks and the, the crack and everything. <laughs> I remember mean, driving ourselves in the mini bus doing 14 gigs back-to-back, and we didn't care. You know, it was just brilliant. Um I sort of really liked how I did things and said, you need to come and work for us, so that's with that. And then I just carried on stumbling. I like spent 50% of my time working for a band, mixing or whatever, and the other 50% I was running PAs, usually mm. crew bossing, and that went on for the next 25 years, I suppose, up until the early 2000s. Uh, when I had my heart attack Gosh. and then decided I need to come off the road for a bit.
0: Well, 25 years of fun will do that to you, I suppose. It did,
1: yeah. Well, I looked rehab nurse came in to see me when I was in hospital, and she said, you're 47 years old and you've just had a heart attack. So what do you think? So I said, well, to be fair, I earned that. She said, well, what do you mean? So I spent, oh, I've been smoking two packs of Red mulberry a day, um, doing inordinate amounts of drugs, of one sort or another, and not really caring about why I ate. So he said, yeah, it's true. Well, all that's going to change now, isn't it? <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a fair cop. Busted. So, I mean, that was 20 years
0: ago, so. Busted. Like, yeah, Busted definitely. Finally.
1: And I'm really lucky I got away with it. You know, a lot of us, a lot of them, quite a few people I know didn't.
0: Obviously, with the sort of creeping professionalisation of the industry, um it's like even when I started, there were still people who were living it up a bit. Whereas now there's young people coming into this who are quite serious. And you mean like yeah, you they've, snow? They've, yeah, yeah, like me. Um and they have studied, they've they've thought about how they're going to end up in this career. And so they come in, they're like, No, 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 we I'm I'm taking this very seriously. Yeah, yeah. And I remember meeting people when I first started. Who still didn't really take it that seriously, but still did very well for themselves. So. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, what the, the, the. Yeah, I mean, I, I can remember reading the right to people about doing drugs on site and stuff, you know. And they look at me because they know what I used to be like, you know, and I'm, yeah. and I'm saying, no, you can't do this and you can't do that. And they're looking at me going, really? You know. <laughs> so it, it is becoming more professional. And. In some ways, that's a good thing. But one thing I am finding, there's two different branches, if you like. There's the techs and there's the engineers. Hmm. A tech is very, very good at setting up a system and getting the system to sound absolutely phenomenal. And I can do that to a degree, although I haven't got the technical knowledge to do as much as I maybe should do if I was a full-on tech. But where they fall down is they find it difficult to engineer because they cannot Mm. listen to a piece of music that's being played live, take it apart and figure out what's wrong. So they'll be listening to it, and they'll know it doesn't sound right, but they won't know why it doesn't sound right. The different components that make that up, the different tones of the different instruments that make that up, you know, what needs to change Mm. to make it sound good. And that's where they fall down. Now, old rockers like me, who started off as a musician way back when, have grown up with it, and we grew up playing to start with, so we know what instruments are supposed to sound like and how they sound like, what they do. And over the years, we've learned about the tone of instruments and the frequencies of instruments, so we can mix, right? But I'm finding that a lot of the newer generation of serious engineers, some of them can't do it. You know, there are exceptions... But there's a lot who can't, but they are absolutely brilliant techs. Yeah. And they can set a system up and make the system sound fantastic on program music, but to take a, a live show apart, not so much.
0: I know a very good tech, and I was at a gig. I, I was just recording the show for, for the headline band. You know, the system sounded amazing. And they had to mix the support bands. I was standing there in front of the house and I had to show them how a compressor works. And it wasn't a criticism of him at all, but he just wasn't... He was like, I'm not interested in mixing. He said, I sometimes have to do it, and I can make sound come out of the PA, but no one would pay me to do it. He said, people will pay me to put up a system, and I love doing that. And I love working out how a loudspeaker will work to its best performance. But mixing a band? Yeah. Yeah,
1: I I mean, which is fair enough. Techs will understand... A system and how to get the best out of it and can look at a room and figure it figure out the best place and look at sound vision and work out you know i've got the greatest admiration for them and maximum respect for what they do i'm not degrading their skill set but there's Mm. so what i'm saying is there are two different skill sets now back in the day i used to run the system and engineer i did it quite a lot yeah But I don't think I could do that now because there's so much going on with the modern line-array system and so much to monitor that I don't think you can do it justice if you're teching and mixing because you can't do
0: both. Yeah, I suppose one's going to suffer.
1: Uh, Even even on the theatre tour, I don't think that's possible anymore Mm. because you need a tech, you need somebody who understands the system and who can monitor what's going on with the system and offer you advice even. About what the system could do to make your life easier, or you can turn to the tech and say, "This isn't quite right overall. Can we do something about it?" You know, I think that's essential now. Rather than, it's not a one-man job. It's definitely a two-person job from the outset.
0: So, thinking about building the PA systems, I and mean, you go back to the the 80s where suddenly you were starting Uh to get these very big box systems like mt4 and things
1: yeah i'm so i'm so in a b for mt4 (laughs) 140 odd kilos for a top box was just fucking ridiculous
0: i remember it must have been the remainder of the mt4 system (laughs) and I, i put some in for a dance tent somewhere in my early days and it took four people to even just like lift it an inch off the floor I went up to Glasgow. It was outside Hampden Park Stadium in the car park, and I built this MT4 system. And the Glasgow crew were literally like just heaving it above their heads, and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't even, I can't even lift a corner of that without screaming."
1: Yeah, well, we used to stack it four, right? Right. Like, uh, yeah, it was, it was horrible. But it, it, it was what you did, and there were a lot of boxes that were that heavy at the time. Mm. I mean, old fashioned magnets and stuff like that. And so it just made it a heavy system. I mean, nowadays with neodymium and stuff like that, stuff is a lot lighter. Mm. But back then they were heavy.
0: Was it all ground stacked or did you build a, a wing of PA? No, no or...
1: it was designed to fly and it flew very, very quickly. Mm. We had a flying system and basically a beam that you used to hook the boxes onto, which had a trough in it that we used to run the cables. And you could pin the beam in different angles. So we'd, uh, we used to fly an arena, we'd fly a big arena system in under an hour. Wow. And it was very, very quick support because you could pre stack it as well. Uh, you know, so you pre stacked it in twos or two and a half, so like two fours and a two. So and then just pull it in, hook it up, and away you go. And you, you got to sort of learn the best way of doing things as far as how you configured
0: the boxes. Did you just do it by eye then, in terms of you go, well, I think probably you need a, a little bit wider there? Or
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the actual array you'd probably pre-do. I mean, like, for instance, with the MT4, I um, used to have all the horns out so that all the horns were in the same direction. Mm. So Some people used to block horns together for long turns, but I never used to – that was – I found that to be wrong because you get hot spots all around the system, whereas if you did the way I did, it was fairly even distribution. I mean, nothing like the evenness you get with the line array, yeah. but better. And it was just a case of you knew how the system worked. You'd look at an arena and go, right, we need to do this and just do it. But after you've been doing it for a while, you know what each arena is going to need or Each venue is gonna need so that's the way you go. I
0: was quite surprised a couple of years ago I did a a pink support act around America and Claire were doing it. I I, I was like, Oh, I want to see them putting up this PA because each day I get in and it was already up and I was getting in earlier and earlier each day. And eventually I came in at like nine thirty in the morning and I was like, It's already how have you put it up? (laughs) And the guy goes, Oh well, I just I just uh I don't have to like measure the room every day. I just hang it up in the air the same way every day, and if it's a bit echoey, then I turn off some of the top yeah, boxes. And I was that, like,
1: Jesus, yeah, <laughs> that's where the cloud system falls down. Yeah. That's the, they they they've got no sound vision or or didn't have anyway. Any sort of predictive software. And that was what software. they called a the
0: line array as well. But
1: yeah, um, really. But and, it, 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 and the S4 was even worse than that. Uh, I, I, the, when you um, when S4 was prevalent over here, the uh, the guys from the noise police used to because he just had you know, when line arrays were happening yeah. over here and we were starting to get reasonable limits in and that. But Claire's just used to fire off everywhere. It didn't matter what the venue was, it got the same every day. <laughs> and some days it sounds shit and some days it sounded great because there was no consistency. Yeah. There was no alternate for each venue. And that's why production managers used to love it. Like, Jake Berry used to love Claire's because it would go in exactly the same every day. So the local crew could do it. It it would go up very quickly. His union bills would come down because it was exactly the same every day. Nobody was on the computer working out how to fly it and all that. He used to love it because it saved him fortunes on his union Uh. bills. And so did production. But the sound quality was, I'm speaking personally, was so inconsistent.
0: So when you're stacking your MT4 four high, did you just get a forklift in, or how did you, how did you lift the box no, that well, big? Well, so if, if you could,
1: if it wasn't always possible, so you'd have to do it off the stage usually. So you do you do your ground two, your bottom two rows, which are usually subs, mm. and they only weighed about 105 kilos a pop, so they were fairly liftable. And then the next two rows, um, you'd get up, sort of stepping it off the stage, um, a bit like building a pyramid, yeah. and you, you just do it. The last one was always the pain in the ass because oh. it was a deadlift, but other than that, it was like stepping it up or whatever and sliding. It was quite fun. I had a little tail. We, um, we had to send a system to Zimbabwe, a mm-hmm. 40 and we got a phone call from Gatwick, and I happened to be in the office when the phone call came through. And it was. um, Could you um, tell us how these are bolted together? And uh, the reply was, "They're not bolted, mate. They're just heavy."
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't imagine trying to fly any of that.
1: Oh, the flying bit—that was easy. That was so easy because it was just like a, you know, those cargo chain things with the slider. It was just one of those either side of the box, and then depending on where you put the slider, was how the angle Mm. was. And then the box underneath would react against the box above it. And again, by using the slide, you get the angle. Mm. There were only two connections of box. So that's why it was so quick. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have to be fiddling about with pins and like the the Harwell with pins and different variables and all that. You just, you know, you knew what you wanted and you just did it. So it was. Did you
0: put a a ratchet on the bottom box to to open the curve? No, didn't have to do that. It was just just a straight,
1: just two drops and away it went wow uh, there wasn't much of a j-curve i have to say because <laughs> line arrays are only like well, five or ten percent vertical dispersion mm. whereas those boxes were like 30 40 degrees vertical dispersion so it was a, a different yeah. thing completely to the line array yeah. you didn't need the j-curve that you need on a line array
0: yeah. all this talk about big mc4 boxes now I, I can remember you telling me about this years ago but you might have to retell it because I've I probably got it wrong, but it was, was it MC Hammer? And uh, and you had a radio on the bus.
1: Yeah, we, it was, um, i just finished a Metallica tour in the States. i come back and we just got MC Hammer. So it was a bit weird the tour was because there was so many of them. I think they had six buses. The bankers were dancers and mm. all sorts, right? Mm. And they were mostly street kids from Oakland in California, hadn't got a clue. But the the popular stories one kid bought 10, 12 volt batteries with him car batteries so he could run his ghetto blaster, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> he knew it was 110 volts and he, he could only got 240 over here. So he didn't understand DC, AC, nothing like wow. that. He just you know, anyway, so that was one. And if they stopped the rule was they all had to stop. So if one bus stopped, they all had to stop. So in German services, you can imagine the scene when six buses full of Oakland street kids pulled up in a truck stop in the middle of Germany and all pile in there trying to get something to eat. It was hysterical. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. So anyway, I joined the tour and we start off and the American guys are saying who I knew, who were saying, this is the loudest thing you've ever heard. So I said, no, why? I said, I've just come off (laughs) metallic. He said, no, I'm telling you, man, this is the loudest thing you've ever heard. Particularly the sub is unbelievable. And we had MT4 subs on either side, eight wide, two high, so 16 each side, and that went in every day. didn't matter how many highs went in, 16 subs a side went in every day. And it was pumping. It was so loud. And that, this was the time of the 888 box, you know, the thing that could, does that 40, those oh, drop. Yeah. On. yeah. And that was so loud. As an example, I was walking into the venue when they were sound checking. And do you know the Festival in Frankfurt?
0: Um, you know um, that no,
1: big, no, it's a massive venue. But the stage is a good well, 50 yards from where the loading door yeah. is and there was a ramp on the floor outside the venue, and as the 808's kicking in, the ramp on the floor is rattling, right? And this is outside the venue, a good 60, 70 yards from the stage. So that gives you some idea of the sort of level. Ow. It was unbelievable. And the speakers used to catch fire (laughs) because they'd just go past their excursion, jam, and then, because this was before um, any sort of, logic on the amplifiers and stuff you know we did but we blew a
0: lot of speakers was it la- analog limiting gi- as well i'm guessing
1: yeah uh. yeah no there was none of that i mean you, you could put limiters on it but you'd immediately hear it uh. and you, you, they wouldn't stand for it so they go past their excursion jam up and then they're still pumping volts into it so just used to hit the coil up until the the cone caught fire. You know, so, and after a couple of gigs, we all decided we weren't going to be in the venue during the show. <laughs> we'd sit on the bus on walkie-talkies, and the, the conversation on the walkie-talkies used to be, money of cabs caught fire, okay, unplug it, we're coming in. And, um, and I think in um, probably about 20 gigs, 25 gigs maybe, we replaced over 30 18-inch speakers who <laughs> were just getting shipped in all the time. It was horrendous. Wow. The best one was we did... We're doing Wembley Arena, and it was, uh, I think it was the Terrence Higgins Trust. There was like a, a, a <coughs> one of the nights we were booked in, was a Terrence Higgins Trust venue gig, and there were loads of people on, an MC Hammer headlining, because it was they were in there anyway, and used an APA. So all went well, and couldn't headliner, it was MC Hammer. The show started with him going, It's Hammer Time, and the ATOA's going, <laughs> <laughs> And stage right at the old Wembley, there was a VIP boxes, Mm. right, which are painted white as compared to the rest of it. And it just emptied in 10 seconds. All the MPs, all the dignitaries, all the Lords and like, it went from full to empty in less than 10 seconds. It was (laughs) just a mass exodus. It was fabulous.
0: Oh, I I love it. I. I suppose one other question I have about that, and as well is that, obviously um, you were out providing the PA for Metallica and they decided they wanted to have MT4 Mm -hmm. everywhere because that was consistent. But Mm -hmm. why why did a massive American band decide that they wanted to get the PA from Birmingham?
1: (laughs) Because they broke in the UK before they broke in the States. Ah. They were bigger in Europe than they were in the States to start with and much bigger. And the, the tour I did was the Justice for All tour, I think of that 92, maybe. I can't remember. But that was their breakthrough album in the States, mm. if you like. When we first went over there with the PA, they were booked in to do small arenas. So they were, like, doing four to six to 7,000 arenas, small hockey arenas. But when we got there, the ticket sales, they'd, they'd all up the venues to, like, 10,000s and we didn't have the pa really it meant the they was getting thrashed and breaking a lot nah. we blew a load of amps up which meant i had a load of other amps that are american powered running part of the system oh gosh Mixed so it was just a nightmare absolute nightmare and every day i'm replacing components the system flew on carabiners and they were getting nicked every day i spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on carabiners oh. and they're getting phone calls from the office at home saying, why are you spending all this money? It was just a nightmare. And then they decided to switch to EV after the first section of the tour, because that was when John invested in the Electrovoice. Voice. Um, and then we changed over the system about two thirds away for the tour. At that time, I wasn't that familiar with the EV, so I asked if we go and EV check out. And the guy came out and he was really good and they wanted somebody to go home and I volunteered because after three months of hell (laughs) in the States I'd had enough. I don't know Simply Red was starting up in the UK with the other band I used to work Mm -hmm. with a lot. And so I I bailed and came back to England. Uh, I was so desperate to get home. I got to LAX and they offered me $400 to take the next flight because it was fully booked and I said no. I want to go now.
0: (laughs) Oh, yes. I feel your pain sometimes. Getting yeah. towards the end of the tour, and you're like, you know what? They, they've yeah. had their money. So out uh,
1: of and because uh, and, and Mick as well, Mick Hughes, because he started, we got the gear with the gig. I did monitors on the first tour with Mick. Oh, wow. That was in '83, when Cliff was still playing with them.
0: Mm.
1: And then I dropped out of it because I was front of the house for another band, another ridiculous band called Venom at the same time, so that's how they started and it was all through SSC, so there was a sort of link, yeah. if you like and then when Paul uh, came on board um, as the monitor engineer, he had the time with Thunder Audio in the States, so that's when it sort of went away from SSC, uh-huh. really and Mick um, got into using Maya and so it went that way, but we still got close ties, I'll speak to Mick Every now and again, you know, we, we do do some supply for them when they're over here. I'm still know the band really well, it's quite yeah. funny. I mean, even after all these years, I still am first name turned with the, the three members. Who was, I don't know the new guy, but I used to know Jason well and the other three. Uh, um, so, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, at a point, there, there was Big Pete and Big Mick working together. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, that was a turn.
0: So was was it a bit of a rest when you went to Simply Red? Then, <laughs> in terms of in terms um, of the craziness? Yeah, I
1: mean, Sim- yeah, Simply Red was. Uh, I was PA crew boss on that for ten years, maybe twelve years. I was babysitting monitors, but I was putting the PA up with Martin. Uh, yeah, I was with them for a long time, and you know, good. It was good work. The band were great. Mick was, you know, for all his. Got an ego and stuff, he's very, very good at his job. Mm. And you know where you stand, you know, it's his band, if you don't like it, fuck <laughs> off, basically. And you know exactly where you stand, and and I like that. Okay, he's got an ego, people blow smoke up his ass all the time, but he's very, very good. You know, he must have done 30 live recordings, I suppose, over the time. And I never, ever did he have to do a vocal overdub to fix things, he was that good. Yeah. Uh, his mic technique was unbelievable. Uh, he was just very, very good at his job, very good. And we always got looked after, always put in the same hotel as the band, always flew club class everywhere. You know, it was a, it was good to And particularly Stars were just absolutely unbelievable. That year of Stars, every single gig sold out. Wow. And we did, like, 18 Wendy Arenas, 18 NECs. 18 Sheffields. And then, on top of that, we did about 15 stadium gigs. Every one of them sold wow. out.
0: I mean, there's, there's hardly anyone who'd do that these days, but he, back then, that's even more extreme. Yeah,
1: and it was just that one album as well, because the next album, <clears throat> Home, we were all expecting to go out for two years and it only lasted about seven months. Because ah. uh, it just died on its arse.
0: No explaining that. The, eh? the risk you take. Yeah,
1: yeah. But they were really good to work for. I mean, I've got a story, if you like. We we were doing one of the seven nights since Wembley, Mm. and we used to do, like, three shows, day off, but leave the gear in, then another three shows. And um, we were stopping the Langham Hilton, which is right opposite BBC Radio in the centre of London, near Portland Place. It's like a five-star hotel, mega box. And you get back to the hotel after the show every night, so you're getting back, I don't know. Half eleven, midnight, something like that, and of course everybody goes straight to the bar. But you can't pay for stuff at the bar; you can only sign it, right? (laughs) Because there's no chilling. So of course everybody's signing away, you know, and by that they're getting pissed. And so at the end of the week we're checking out, and everybody's got to pay their bar bill, right? So I was one of the first ones to get to the counter, and I got my bar bill. How much? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and to a man, everybody who came up to that counter, everybody got their bill and went, how much? <laughs> and the, I think the record, and this is like 92, I think the record was something like 780 pounds for the week bar bill. Wow. Yeah. And this is when we were only earning about,
0: 200
1: quid a week. Yeah. Oh. Uh, Frightening. So we asked the band when we were staying in London if we could downgrade <laughs> a couple to, of
0: degrees from there. To somewhere with a cheaper bar. Yeah, uh, somewhere
1: with a cheaper
0: bar. Oh. Uh, but I'm sure it was very high-quality beer.
1: It was very, very high-quality wine or
0: champagne. <laughs> uh. Oh. I suppose it, it's a side story to all of the technology and the mad times, but how did it affect family life, being on tour? (laughs) 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 Um, I wonder about this because, you know, I've stepped back a bit from doing crazy tours. My girlfriend
1: didn't last, Mm. really. I think the longest relationship I had on the time I was on the road was two years, of which I was probably at home for four months, Mm. maybe. It doesn't work. It it didn't work for me. The, and out of all the people I know have been on the road forever, I can only think of about four where the relationship has lasted and worked. Because if they're at home, they're wondering what the hell you're up to on the road and they know what goes on. You mm. know what I mean? They've
0: heard the stories. Well, no longer They're also
1: <laughs> Well, yeah, that's one thing. And they also is that they get into a routine, if you like, mm. and when you come home, you completely disrupt the routine. If there's a, for instance, I went out with a girl who had a four- or five-year-old son who was the same age as my son. Mm. Anyway, she had a job. She had childminders and organised things, pick up him up from school as she was working, mm. blah, 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 all that sort of thing. Because when I come home, because I'm not working or anything, I can do all that, so it saves her loads of money. But then I'll get a phone call and I'm off again. You know what yeah. I mean? With no, no, and that's the worst thing because you can't plan. Because in this business, it's all down to last minute notice. Yeah. Phone calls. Who's, a, who's available. Yeah. Exactly. It's very rare. And especially back then, it's very rare you'll get more than a week notice. Mm. And in the end, the comment was, oh, we had this huge rail on the phone. And I said, what's the matter? I said, I'm just fed up with you coming back and disrupting my life. You know, that, yeah. That's the story. And I've got a son who's now, you know, he's in his mid-30s. We get on great, and I used to try and see him as much as I could back in, you know, the day. Took him out on the road with me a few times when he was older in his teens. But, you know, there's lots of things I missed him growing up, and I regret that yeah. in a lot of ways. But by the same token, I don't regret any of the yeah. stuff on the road. And since, since i come off the road, I got into a relationship and we got married, and We've been together 15 years now. Mm. So, you know, that's the difference.
0: Yeah. And
1: now I'm back on the road again, but it's a lot different to back in the day. Yeah. Now it tends to be in shorter spurts. Now, back in the day, I'd go away for three or four months at a time, but now it tends to be two weeks or mm. a week or three weeks. It's not huge chunks of time. And the social media and the technology make a world of difference because of You've got your mobile phone. You've got Skype. You've got FaceTime. Yeah. You can contact one another and stay in touch, which is different to how it was when you were the only hotel, only phone was in the hotel, which used to cost a fortune. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's a
0: lot different. Yeah. Lot different. I've got one friend who has a, I think she's fourteen year old daughter now, and she said to mm-hmm. her, "Should I have stayed at home? Should I have not gone and been a sound engineer?" And her daughter said to her, "Well." you're a sound engineer and I love that you're a sound engineer and she right. said I, I wouldn't have it any other way because I know that you love me I know that you look after me and yeah sometimes you go away for a, a few weeks but that's who you are and I love it that mm. was sort of quite heartwarming that you know it is yeah, possible to make it yeah I mean
1: Simon Sean you know the terrible relationship with his mum when he was younger but he left home when he was 16 but he's always had a sensible head so I've never had to worry about him as such yeah We've always been in touch on the phone. He used to spend summers with me and Christmas with me. Um, so we've got a good relationship. And, I mean, we're not living in one of those pockets. He lives up in Middlesbrough. He's not in rock and roll. He's, <laughs> when he left school, his mates said, why don't you do what your dad does, travelling around the world, working with bands, be great, eh? And I've had him out with me a few times doing gigs mm. and stuff. And he said, I've done what my dad does. It's shit. <laughs> No. So uh, he's a civil engineer now and he's he's doing very well.
0: Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. I was speaking to uh, another front of house engineer last year and the band he was with had just suddenly hit its stride and it was going mental. You know, it was just gig after gig after gig. And he was like, I've I've got a three-year-old daughter at home. And he said, "and I feel like I haven't seen her this year because it's just been mental. And I was saying... you Know that the industry has become more professional, but there's still one or two things that back in the old days, and I, I said, How you'd ever persuade anyone to do like a job share and say, Look, this schedule is too mad for one person, you, you'll burn everyone out if you do this. But you know, I, I wonder if one I day it it's... could reach that point where people would say, You know, yeah, what, I, we think it, share I think
1: it? it's becoming less so though, because the bands are also aware of that as well. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They've got families and they want to see people. So I think there's a lot more sympathy to not being... I mean, if, even if you're on a tight schedule or you're doing a lot of gigs, you still get a weekend or three or four days where you get some time at home, you know yeah. what I mean? Or bring them out to you. Yeah. And I think the bands are more aware of that than before. I mean, Simply Red were really good at that as the day... Band members and crew members who had kids. Uh, if the split city were on multiples, I'd bring the kids out, have days with the kids, and the kids would come to the gigs. Even to the degree, we had, we all had tour jackets made up, and we had kid sizes as well, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh. and I did think how much that must be worth, actually. <laughs> My son's got a 10-year-old Stars jacket <laughs> got for when he was 10, and he must be worth a fortune Oh. Um, yeah, but it—I it, it, yeah, think it's times are changing. Yeah. The people are a lot more aware of family, and as I say, the, t- the tour periods aren't as long mm. as they used to be because there's no support there, so they have to be efficient, yeah. and you can't afford to go out for three months at a time. You know, do two weeks in one one area. The only exception to that is the states
0: mm.
1: because it's such a big place that you can tour it for. Six months yeah. and not do the same venue twice. Yeah. But then again, you're in the same country, so if you get a weekend off, you can fly home.
0: And When I when I was speaking to Phil, he was telling about his first uh, Zeppelin tour in the US in April or May 1970. And you know, he said they flew out there and they did 26 gigs in 30 days. He quit after that because he was like, this is the biggest yeah. band in the world. And if if, if this but is you know, as good as but it gets. Then it was,
1: that was what it was like. Mm. And now, as I say, now, the bands won't, because everybody, the bands are very, they, don't forget, the band were all in their early 20s. Do you know yeah. what I mean? At that point. So they were up for it and they hadn't got any commitments. Yeah. They hadn't got, you know, I think Bonzo was married at that point, but that, he was the only one. But they're, they're up for it. They want to do it. And they were into going out every night getting bollocks and all the rest of it. Now, as the bands get older, they don't want to do it anymore. I mean, I like working with Thunder for twenty odd years. I've seen the difference in them mm. over the years. Now they're all in; they're all coming up sixty this year. I started with them; they were in their late twenties, early thirties. So the difference is amazing. They've grown up. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've got kids. They've got. They want to go home. They don't want to do hundreds of weeks, yeah, back to back gigs. Yeah. You know. It's it's just
0: changing. It's, it's, it's a nice job now. <laughs> it's, well, I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, it's still rough. It? Well, well, thank you very much, anyway, for, for chatting. No
1: problem. I have a lot of free time at the moment. <laughs>
0: Good sort of okay have, have a lovely See afternoon in the sun. I will. I will. Cheers. See you later. <laughs> you. A History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow. Executive Producer at Spare Women, and is a Bandwidth Production.